This week on Q&A, our guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edmund Morris. He talks about his most recent work, This Living Hand and other essays, his upcoming book on Thomas Edison, and his experiences as a biographer of presidents and other notable historical figures. Edmund Morris, in your book, This Living Hand and other essays, I notice you're writing a book about Edison. That's right. Why Edison? It's this mysterious attraction of subject to biography, which I've never been able to explain, but it happens. Now, after I finished my last book, which was the third of a trilogy on Theodore Roosevelt, I was looking around for another subject. My agent said to me, what about Edison? It's about time somebody did a big book on him. And I said, I don't think I want to do another enormous biography. So I said no to the idea. But a few months later, it's mysterious how these things happen. I was at an airport in Florida, Fort Myers, which is near where Edison used to have his uh, winter plantation, next to Henry Ford's. And I was running to catch a plane and came across this airport lobby display of a huge cutout, life-size cutout of Thomas Edison, one of these photographic silhouettes. I literally barged into it, and it was posed next to his electrified Model T that Henry Ford had given him. So here am I, standing, looking into Thomas Edison's eyes, and he's looking photographically at me. And I suddenly became overwhelmed with curiosity. I thought, this guy is fascinating. I have to write about him. And all the way back to New York on the plane after that encounter, I felt this lust to write. So that's how it started, as simply as that. When did you start the book? Well, immediately. I began the research. How long ago is that now? I guess that was two years ago. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, if not more. I got a contract almost immediately. It's a huge subject, as you can imagine, and particularly to somebody who spent his life writing about presidents and composers. So to write about this polymath of a scientist was something quite new, but that's part of the attraction. I love the challenge of writing about something quite different to what I wrote about before. Where are you on the timeline to get this done? That's the kind of question that makes any nonfiction <laughs> writer want to shoot himself. <laughs> I don't know, Brian. You can never tell how long a biography is going to take. I thought I could finish with Reagan in four or five years. It took me 14. Um, I spent 30 years writing about Theodore Roosevelt. It's actually less than it sounds because I wrote other books in the meantime. But each of the, of the Theodore Roosevelt books took about five years to write. Beethoven took me two years, so how long Edison will take, I cannot tell. What's one thing you've learned about Edison you didn't know? How profoundly imaginative he was. One thinks of a scientist as somebody who works in terms of process, experimentation and theories. But the fact that these inventions of Edison, these 1,092 patented inventions that poured out of him from the age of 14 onward. Um, the fact of that prodigal outpouring of inventiveness 
derived from imagination is what fascinates me. He really was an inspirational person. I'll give you an example. He was talking to um, a science fiction writer in the 1880s who was explicating the new current theory of atomic composition of matter. Even in the 1880s it was known that all matter could be reducible down to atoms. So this guy was talking to Edison about this subject and Edison said if this theory is correct and we are indeed all composed, all matter consists of atoms. He said, I suppose it would be possible for me to take a few atoms of myself and transfer those atoms to a rose. And then I could retrieve those atoms and put them back into myself and thereby acquire some of the sensibility of a rose. That's what I mean about his profoundly imaginative nature. That's a poetic perception. That's not scientific, that's poetic. Nowadays, most of the 20th century and the 21st, scientific inventions come out of theory. First the theory, then the invention. With Edison, the invention came out of nowhere, spontaneously. So when a biographer has a person they want to write about, where do you start? What's that first day like? One one always has this desire to get to know the person, if he's dead, of course. Uh, Reagan was alive when I wrote about him, so that was easy, but I had to get to know Theodore Roosevelt. I had to be able to see him, feel him, even smell him. I researched what kind of cologne he wore. And it was the same with Edison. For me, a lot of the process of getting to know somebody comes from analyzing, looking at their writings. I love the look of handwriting and I can sort of deduce the movement of the hand that, that wrote those words. Photographs are immensely important to me. I've, it's very important for me to know exactly what they looked like and the things around them. So the first um, curiosity manifests itself visually, audibly, in terms of sensations. And once I feel I have the person in my field of knowledge, then I can begin to tell the story of the life and analyze the mind. Wanna, speaking of biography, I want to talk with you about <clears throat> presidents, and obviously you know two very well, mm -hmm. but I want to first run a video clip of an interview that uh, we did with Robert Dalek, and he's talking about a series of meetings with President Obama. Before we show this, have you met with President Obama? Yeah at one of these meetings? I went to dinner in the White House, a historian's dinner, so I met him there. Let's listen to Robert Dalek and then you can fill in the blanks from your perspective. We talked about a, a great variety of things in those, uh, in those interviews or <clears throat> in those dinners. And of course there were roughly 12 historians, I wasn't the only one there, and uh, some of his uh, principal aides, including uh, each time one of his principal speechwriters. So, uh, for me, it was a fascinating experience to be able to, at one point, sit right next to the president uh, at dinner and uh, have this kind of exchange with him. Uh, in many ways, it felt like a uh, an academic seminar because, after all, you know, he is a uh, someone who uh, has been a professor of law 
And uh, uh, it was like being in a seminar with a bunch of colleagues was the way I would characterize it. When did you meet with President Obama and what, was Mr. Dalek there? Yes, he was. I've forgotten what year it was. It's about four years ago. It was during his first term. It was just after the Gulf spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which made me realize what a cool customer he was. Because this catastrophic thing had just happened in the Gulf. Douglas Brinkley was there and he'd personally witnessed a lot of the ecological damage that had been caused. And uh, Obama was completely unmoved. He took it as a procedural issue. Something could be solved by discussion and process and meetings. It was an issue. It was a political phenomenon. It was not an environmental catastrophe. He was very, very cool. In one of your essays and the book that I mentioned, uh, you write Barack Obama's, this is back in April of 2009, Barack Obama seems to be very conscious of the power of his own rhetoric and just not just the written speeches he delivers so effectively, but the spoken sentences in which he thinks aloud during interviews and press conferences. Have you changed your mind at all since it was five years ago? Oh, absolutely not. I love to hear him think aloud, the, 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 the clarity of his sentences, the sequential thought. Uh, I do get the feeling he's in love with his own voice. He goes on too long. He, he sees things so clearly. He expresses himself so well that he indulges himself rhetorically. What are some of the other things you've noticed being around him when you were and other presidents or President Reagan that you were around? What was the difference in the way people treated him? There is a divinity doth hedge a king and a president. Uh, people always tend to be obsequious in a president's company. There's a lot of laughter, which is not really laughter. The strange smile that spreads over the faces of people in the presence of the president. It's, it's kind of half um, joy and half fear. One notices it all the time. So um, everybody was very deferential to him. And of course, presidents love to talk. So we all sat there and listened and listened and listened. The difference between him and Reagan was that um, with Reagan, he was much more aloof than Obama was. Uh, Obama uh, is such an intelligent person that he focuses directly upon you, although he's not particularly interested in you. He does focus and he does listen. Reagan, um, you could die in front of him, he wouldn't have noticed. He would continue with his stories. Reagan was always living somewhere slightly apart from the room he was in. How many different occasions were you in the room with Ronald Reagan? Oh, countless times. In the sense that I was um, a fixture at the White House uh, during his second term, I could come and go as often as I liked. I interviewed him every month. I spent a lot of time with him after the presidency. And I was able to go to meetings and go on trips with him, so I had plenty of time to observe him. That's when I noticed, following in his wake, the strange universal expression that crowds have as the president approaches and walks through them. The strange smile on every face. You tell this story, and, and you tell it in this book, but I, I don't remember whether you've, you've I've heard it, heard you tell this, and we're going to run the video first of his farewell address. You were in the room, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. when he gave his farewell address. Let's run a little bit of this and get you to tell the story. Mm -hmm. My fellow Americans, this is the 34th time I'll speak to you from the Oval Office, and the last. We've been together eight years now, and soon it'll be time for me to go. 
But before I do, I wanted to share some thoughts, some of which I've been saving for a long time. It's been the honor of my life to be your president. So many of you have written the past few weeks to say thanks, but I could say as much to you. Nancy and I are grateful for the opportunity you gave us to serve. One of the things about the presidency is that you're always somewhat apart. You spend a lot of time going by too fast in a car someone else is driving and seeing the people through tinted glass, the parents holding up a child and the wave you saw too late and couldn't return. And so many times I wanted to stop and reach out from behind the glass and connect. Well, maybe I could Did do you, a um, do you believe that, that he wanted to reach out behind the glass and connect? Or is that words from somebody else? No, I don't believe it. He was always happy behind the screen of glass. Even when he was a young actor writing about his emotions when he stepped on the set, the stage set in Hollywood in 1937, he said, I felt myself stepping behind a wall of light. Reagan loved to feel, oh, and he said, the wall of light enshrouded me, and I began to act. Reagan loved that feeling that he was screened off from the rest of humanity by this wall of light, which was transparent, and through which he was being watched. But he never wanted to step out of it when he did step out of it. For example, after the Republican convention of 1976, when Ronald Reagan very nearly unseated President Gerald Ford for the nomination. He, um, it was spectacular television. Ford made the mistake in his acceptance speech of saying, Ronnie, would you like to come down and say a few words to the convention delegates? If you can ever get a clip of this, Brian, you should show it, because it's theater, political theater, it's best. Um, it was a catastrophic mistake of Gerald Ford, because down from this high room, taking his time, comes Ronald Reagan. Ford had to wait for him to come on stage, and on stage comes this magnificent person, ambling along, looking like a million bucks, and proceeded to say a few words, which as you heard them, you realize this is the acceptance speech he would have delivered if he'd been nominated. Meanwhile, behind him, Gerald Ford is standing with the blood draining from his face, realizing that the delegates out there are all thinking, God, we, we nominated the wrong guy. He gives this spectacular speech. Reagan at his oratorical best. But he then had to step off stage, get in the helicopter, and fly back to Los Angeles to private life. A few days later, a neighbor in Pacific Palisades saw Ronnie Reagan coming down the driveway to put out the trash. And he said he looked terrible. He was stooped, he was lined, pale, pale-faced, all his charisma had evaporated. He had stepped outside that wall of light. He was back in the real world, and he didn't feel comfortable. Now, you were in that room for that farewell address. Where were you sitting? I was sitting just a few yards away to his um, right with Peggy Noonan and a few other White House aides. And that same transformation I'm talking about took place in that, in that room because I arrived about 10 minutes before 9, found the Oval Office looking strangely denuded with these cables across the floor and all the ornaments off the desk, which is how it's always done when the President makes a speech. Um, it just looks better that way on television, but in, in situ it looks bleak. So into this bleak room comes Reagan, steps in through the 
French door, looking strangely subdued. And I knew this is an important speech, and I couldn't figure out why he was so subdued. He was holding in his hand a glass of hot water wrapped around the white towel. Went down, sat behind the desk, drank the hot water, which is what he always did before a speech to, uh, to soothe his vocal cords and make his voice husky. And again, he still seemed ill at ease. Then I noticed that his eyes kept flickering toward a dead monitor, which was to the left of his desk the monitor on which his image was about to appear before the televising began. And when the image popped up on the screen of himself, he said, ah, there he is. And instantly he became happy. He'd seen himself on the screen. He knew he was about to perform. And the transformation occurred. They counted down five, four, three, two. And he became Ronald Reagan looking like a million bucks and doing what he did best. Did he know you were in the room? Yeah, I suppose he did. Reagan was not particularly interested who was in a room as long as there were people in the room. And over <clears throat> the times that you met with him, did he know every time when you met with him who you were? Yeah. Yes, I used to think sometimes that he was out to lunch, but there was one very telling incident long after he left the White House. He came back in the last month of George H.W. Bush's presidency to receive the Medal of Honor. And um, he was significantly older then. This would have been January of 1994. So I was there with a bunch of the old Reagan White House people and we filed by 500 of us shaking hands with the old guy. And when I finally shook hands with him, he seemed very distant. His eyes were opaque, and I thought, well, he's losing it. But then I heard from Fred Ryan, who was his chief of staff, that on the plane back to California, Reagan said to Fred, you know, I saw Edmund in the line today, and you know, I think he's waiting for me to die before he writes his book. In other words, this spaced-out former executive had noticed me, seen something in my face that I hardly wanted to acknowledge myself. So that was the mystery of Reagan. You, you never quite knew just how acute he was. He seemed to be play-acting, not particularly curious about you, but he registered. Are there moments that you've never written about having been around him <clears throat> over the years you just have not had the occasion to talk about? Sure, but um, any biographer has to select his material. Can you give us an example of something you've never used? Mm. Not of the cuff. I haven't thought about him for long. Um, I just have these images that stay in my head one night before he made an appearance in his presidential library. This is long after the presidency. It was when he was beginning to be strange the dementia was beginning to be noticeable. He was standing with his back to the sunset, the Pacific behind him through the windows, in a silhouette, and his, that pompadour hair of his was sticking up, and it was crescent with the glow of the sunset. He looked as though he was on fire. Um, I wished I could have put that image into words. I think I tried to in Dutch, but uh, it haunts me. 
the silhouette surrounded by fire. Have you spent time around any other presents? Yes, Jimmy Carter, um, Gerald Ford, um, Obama, both Bushes. Anything of any of those you, people you mentioned that uh, comes to mind when you talk about observing something we don't normally see? They all like to talk. They're all used to undivided attention. And I think that goes with the territory. In Carter's case, but they're all, they're all human beings in different, psychologically different in fundamental matters. For example, Carter, I met him uh, twice after the presidency. Once was when he wanted some advice from presidential historians on um, how to write his memoirs, as he pronounced it, <laughs> his presidential memoirs. And uh, he went around the room asking us what we thought. And when my turn came, I said, well, Mr. President, um, for when you begin your book, and beginnings are always crucially important, I would suggest that you begin with that miraculous moment just after you were inaugurated. When you decided to get out of the presidential limo, coming down Constitution Avenue and walk hand in hand with your wife in the sunshine. And I said, after all the claustrophobia and the paranoia of the Nixon and Ford years, here was the President of the United States walking in the open sunshine hand in hand with his wife. I said, that would be a great moment for you to describe. And then perhaps from that flashback to the beginnings of your career and tell your story of how you came to, to that moment. So he said, no, I'm going to start with the day that I triumphed over Scoop Jackson in the Florida primary. And his eyes flashed blue fire. And I realized that was the most important moment in his life when he won that primary. And I sensed this immense aggression. Carter was a killer campaigner, and that triumph was the most important thing that ever happened to him. Here's George Will recently uh, on this program talking about his relationship with uh, George W. Bush. How's that work? You just pick up the phone and say, Mr. President, come to my house? Well, uh, I got to know Ronald Reagan before he was president, and uh, he liked to get out and, and uh, out of the bubble of the White House. George W. Bush, I knew, was interested in this, so I suggested it. And Barack Obama, when he was running, he hadn't even, I think, been nominated yet. And I called someone on his staff and said, he's going to get nominated, he's going to win. Uh, be sort of nice to, as he begins his presidency, let me have a dinner, get some conservative columnists, who people I got around the table, to try and rekindle uh, something that was characteristic of an older Washington you and I can remember it. I think back in the 70s, it was a more amicable... Joe Alsop days. Joe Alsop days, exactly. And uh, so the, I remember Obama himself called me and says, well, I ought to win this first before accepting, but if I do, I'll do that. And so he did. Well, actually, in addition to that, he talked about having a dinner every year at the White House for baseball players. Uh, Again, going back to your experience, is it a, when somebody calls up and says the president wants to visit with you and there are 
10 or 12 people sitting around. What's your real attitude about that? Do you say, I, this is exciting, I want to go there, or I have to go because my president's called? Well, I think it's an American privilege and American duty whenever the president wants to see you to, to show up. Absolutely. And of course, one, one exults in um, talking to the most powerful man in the world, feeling the, that, that you're at the epicenter of power. There's something egg-like about the Oval Office. You feel it's an egg-shaped room. And you feel that the whole world swirls around this egg, perhaps like the white of the egg. But here in this golden egg-like shape, in the middle of it, is the most powerful man in the world. It's intoxicating. Why is it that from time to time, and, and you mention it in this book, that people say you're not a historian? You've now done, well, you've, in addition to the three Roosevelt books and the Dutch book, you did the book on Beethoven and others. What, what do you run into with academics or the world of historians that says that you are not a historian? Oh, I say it myself repeatedly. I'm not a historian. Why not? I think there are different species of cat. Historians deal with more than the individual. A biographer deals with the individual. Biography is the story, writing of life, biography. I'm interested in character, the narrative of character, the strangeness of events, the strangeness of reality. I'm interested in literary matters. Historians have to concern themselves with the abstracts, economics, great social movements, um, consensus, political consensus, ideology. These things don't particularly interest me. I like to write about living human beings who live in extraordinary times and whose characters are extraordinary. The fact that I've written about two presidents is not through any particular interest in politics or government. It's fascination with the personalities of these men and the really unique lives they led. Why an, a biography on Beethoven? I've always loved music very much um, and the to speak in literary terms, the challenge of writing about music is extreme. It's, it's trying to use language to express the inexpressibles of music. Not really possible since music is a superior language to that of writing, but for me to be, who love mu music so much, to have the challenge of being able to communicate or trying to communicate the essence of Beethoven's music was um, something I rose to. Uh, quite apart from that, Beethoven himself was a rich and complex, craggy character of the sort that any biographer would, would love to write. I couldn't write like that about Bruckner, for example, who is um, a composer I admire almost as much, because Bruckner's character was simplistic compared to Beethoven's. Uh could you have been a concert pianist? <laughs> no, I had the fantasy that I might one day, when I was young. But when I married my wife, or at least when I started taking her out as a young man in London, she said, enough about this concert pianist stuff already. If you really do, if you really are serious about going to the Royal College of Music, why don't you go, sign up, study, and I'll support you. She had a teacher's salary. I was in my early 20s, which is already ridiculously late, but I said, I will, I'll do that. So I went to the Royal College of Music to sign up, 
and found that I could not walk up the steps. Something told me that's not my scene. So I went back home and told her, I said, no, I can't do it. She said, I knew you'd come back. And I said, uh, how do you know? She said, well, I've noticed that whenever you play the piano and people criticize your playing, it doesn't seem to bother you. But when anybody criticizes your writing, you go crazy. She says, you're a writer, not a musician. So the bubble was pricked at that moment. In the Beethoven book, you write about others back in those days, Haydn, for instance, and, and others. Did those people back in the 1700s, uh, 1800s, did they play a role in politics in Europe? They had to be politicians in the sense they had to play the politics of the court. Uh, Haydn and Mozart both were treated as servants, were servants in fact, so they had to just learn how to deport themselves in court. And Beethoven himself as a teenager was a court musicus, they used to call them, in the court of the Elector of, um, of Cologne. But he was the first composer in history to emancipate himself when he settled in Vienna at the age of 20 and um, emancipate himself to such an extent that the princes and the dukes and the earls pursued him and wanted to get him to come to their palaces and perform for them. But throughout his career, even when he became the most famous composer in the world, and he was sensationally successful all through his career, he always had to consider the vanity of the aristocrats and the princes and learn how to play one off against the other. So how much of the piano do you play today? I play every day and for an hour or two, sometimes three hours a day. Who are you most likely, which composer are you most likely to uh, play? It goes, I go through phases, I'm on a Brahms kick at the moment. Um, quite coincidentally, um, I don't know if you're aware of Alan Rusbridger, who's the editor of the, of the, Manch of the Guardian newspaper in Britain, the guy who leaked the whole uh, Edward Snowden story. Alan Rusbridger is a middle-aged pianist in his spare time and he wrote a book recently called Play It Again Sam which is the story of him deciding to master in his middle age Chopin's uh, Ballade in G minor number one very difficult piece of music he just wanted to see if he could physically and mentally do it if he could memorize it and perform this extremely difficult piece of music and coincidentally that year of study coincided with the whole Edward Snowden WikiLeaks story. So this book is a quite fascinating parallel story of, a, of an editor of a major newspaper breaking one of the greatest scoops in publishing history, simultaneously trying to master Chopin's Ballade in G minor. Simultaneously I myself without knowing this, decided a year ago to try and master Brahms's variations and themes on a fugue of Handel, which is a monstrously difficult piece, it goes on for about 25 minutes, just to see if in my, in my late middle age I could master it physically. And I found that um, as the brain ages it is capable of improving its, its ability to memorize. Over the year I managed, I found memorizing easier and easier and that the body can be trained. So at the moment I happen to be in a Brahms phase, but next year it'll probably be Liszt or somebody else. Do you uh, have a view of the classical music, as it's called, in this country right now, and whether it is gaining or losing? Oh, it's losing. It's losing. 
Oddly enough, um, YouTube has been an extraordinary resource for music of all kinds, as you probably know. You can get anything on YouTube. If you want to see Edward Elgar conducting, just type his name in. Joseph Hoffman playing the piano, type in Hoffman. So I think there is a, a market out there that we're probably not aware of. Many people who discover the, 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 the complexities and the, the beauties of classical music through the internet. But concert halls are full of graying audiences now. You go to Carnegie Hall, as I do occasionally, everybody in the audience is in their 60s and 70s. It's, it's rather depressing. It's because it's not taught in the schools, of course. Over the years when we've talked uh, about your writing habits, uh, there was a time when you were writing longhand. Mm. Are you still? Not as much as when I was younger. Um, for biographical writing, of course, the computer is, is, is ideal. Shifting of footnotes from one chapter to another, the spell, uh, not spell checking, but um, name checking. You find you've spelt a name wrong, you can correct it instantly all through a manuscript. Technologically speaking, the computer is a great aid to the writing of nonfiction. But I still like to compose sentences initially longhand. Here is some video from a conversation we had some years ago when you're here for In Depth, where it shows you uh, in your home and the card system that you use. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yes, that's my study. Um, it faces the Capitol, and um, I have a desk which was built for me because I've always worked with cards, and I don't know if it comes over clearly on the screen, but I have two projecting drawers that come out on either side of me, each of which carries a yard of cards. In fact, there are four of these drawers, so I've got four yards of cards on either side of me, which I can get at to, and they reconstruct the presidency I'm writing about day by day by day. I write by hand. Um, I do use a computer later on, but I do like to see the words coming out of the pen. And I believe that a writer should have a physical relationship with his manuscript in the sense that it's, some, it's a product of his hands as well as his heart and his head. One of the reasons I think the craft of writing is deteriorating these days is the, there's a disconnect between the hand and the page. You hear all the time now that it young people don't even uh, use cursive at all. They don't study it. They, it's all computerized. What are we losing? What we're losing is direct contact between um, the creator and the created thing. For example, framing of a sentence. These days is dit, 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 dit. It goes into a machine and dot, 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 dot comes out the other end. But there's always this screen interposing not only between those who compose words or music, but those who, architects now design buildings dit, 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 through the computer. They don't draw anymore. An architect friend of mine in New York tells me it's very hard now for him to hire young architects to work in his firm who can even draw. The, consequently, there's been a decline in special skills in young Americans. It's, it's been measured. It's, it's quite catastrophic. Young Americans don't understand volumetric things. They don't understand the flexibility of an aircraft's fuselage. They don't understand how the floors of a house have to be balanced. They don't think three-dimensionally. They think always in terms of a screen. And it's beginning to freak me out. Um,
probably because I just can't adjust to this new th type of thinking, but I feel we are being sensorily dis d deprived. It was a very s um, seminal moment for me. A number of years back, I went with a bunch of uh, graduate high school students to Alcatraz National Park, the Bay of San Francisco, for a dinner in the prison. And all these bright young people, after the dinner, came out from the prison through the uh, lobby of the National Park, the induction center. Um, it was now night, and sp over the, co the counter was this gigantic Kodachrome image of the Bay of San Francisco with the city glittering and this great Kodachrome image. And the kids were photographing it on their cameras, cluttering over it. They then stepped out into the night, the fresh, cold night air. There across the bay, shimmering over the water, is San Francisco, twinkling and trembling. They didn't even look at it. They just went down to the ferry. In other words, they, were, they could only relate to an image that was synthetic and was framed. When they saw the real thing, they didn't even see the real thing. This inability to comprehend anything that's not inside a frame and behind a screen is beginning to worry me a lot. I taught um, for half a semester's right of residence in the University of Chicago, teaching narrative nonfiction to a bunch of very bright students. But their inactivity and impassivity while I was talking week after week began to freak me out. I began to realize that they weren't listening to me so much as watching me. They'd grown up watching heads talking on screens and I was just another talking head. It was a really eerie experience. And when I mentioned this to Lance Morrow, whom you probably know, the Time magazine essayist who teaches up at Boston University, he says he has exactly the same impression. He's being watched. What do you think the impact will be? Virtual reality is, is becoming reality. What is uh, behind a screen is real, what's not behind a screen is not real. Doesn't that go back though to what you said about Ronald Reagan? He understood it does. that. That's why he was so much um, a precursor of the modern sensibility. Reagan only existed as, as, as an image, or at least, uh, no, no, that's not fair. Reagan was a real person. But a lot of his power was his ability to project himself in terms of images. Asked you this before, four years ago, have you still not talked to Nancy Reagan? No, <laughs> not since I published Dutch. I didn't expect to. Anything new on Dutch and your own feelings about the, uh, <clears throat> the way you use the fictional character? you still do that today? Oh yes, if I did that book again, it would do, I would do it exactly the same way. Um, oddly enough, it may surprise you that uh, when people, on, on the occasions when I do meet people in the street or they come up to me or I'm at book festivals, that's the book they talk about most. And as the years have gone by, I've, um, I've exulted in the fact that more and more people realize that what I did in Dutch was uh, honest and uh, something of an advance in biographical technique that suited the subject. The book I have in my hand, This Living Hand, Mm -hmm. uh, was done in 2012. Was it originally a hardback or is it? Yes, super? yes, it was. Um, what's in here? It's the essays that I've written over the course of 40 years. Some on music, some on 
presidential biographies, some on other subjects, travel, humor. How does it work? Do you call them or do they call you and say we want an essay on something? Well, when is one is young and struggling to pay the rent, one hustles for whatever assignments one can get. I used to hustle for wine articles and travel articles and newspaper pieces, op-eds. But as time goes by and you publish books and become somewhat better known, the commissions come spontaneously. So I would say that at least half of those essays were commissioned, the others I had to hustle. There is an essay in here where you it's about your wife mm -hmm. and it says next a friend who worked at Reader's Digest Books assigned us to produce at 17 cents a word <laughs> a series of chapters for a history of exploration entitled Great Adventures that changed uh, our world when were you the closest to not being able to make it financially in this writing world? In the beginning we were very very poor uh, in the mid 70s that was and um, we were pretty desperate and so desperate that um, we took any any kind of work we could take but one of the things about living in New York City is that that great line of E.B. White's nobody should come to New York unless he's prepared to be lucky I found that whenever we were truly desperate the phone rang for example once when I just literally didn't have enough money to pay the rent for next month the phone rang and this voice says Edmund would you and uh, Sylvia like to go across the Atlantic on the SS France, this great luxury liner, and write a brochure about uh, first-class life on the SS France, and we'll fly you back across the Atlantic. And I'm saying, oh, we'll do it for nothing. But they paid us for it. So suddenly we had this extraordinary assignment. We had money flooding in. That's the life of a freelancer. One hopes to be lucky, and one usually is. So go back to that teaching in, at the University of Chicago, teaching writing. Mm -hmm. What would you tell a class if they said, I want to be another Edmund Morris. I want to live that life. Can't, would, it, it, looking at the way the world is changing, the way the communications are changing, you think the future, next 40 years, somebody will be able to do the same thing you and Sylvia Jukes Morris have done in the last 40 years? If you... If you are, by nature, a writer, there's nothing that can stop you doing it. I never try to encourage young people to write. I never try to dissuade them. Um, all I would say to, to them is it's extremely difficult and likely to be more and more so unless you adapt to the new technologies. Those who think that they can earn a living writing print in future, I think, are going to be more and more disillusioned. It's always been difficult, but it's becoming impossible. Young people now should adapt to the screen, to audio, to these new techniques, to computerization, to network television, and start writing in terms of, of that technology. Incorporate more images, more sound effects. I've tried to do it myself. When I did um, the audio of, of Dutch, for example, and this was 10 years ago, I wanted to incorporate into it the sound effects of many of Reagan's great public appearances. It occurred to me he'd been an actor, he'd been president. So I, I used technologies like, for example, when I described his great speech at Bitburg in May of 1985, a crisis point of his presidency. I told the story of how that speech came to be written by his 
speechwriter Ken Kitschigian and how he came to deliver it at Bergen-Belsen on that climactic day. In terms of sound, I had Ken Kitschigian recording the first few sentences in his own voice as though he was musing it on the page. And then I segued into Reagan's voice delivering the real speech on the real day in the audio book. And when audio books use effects like that, they can be extraordinarily dr dramatic. So I think all young people now getting into literature, nonfiction, should start using these techniques. Keep the form alive. This is obviously private, but of all the things you've done, which one has been the most remunerative? In terms of money? Yeah. Oh, the, the Reagan, I got a lot of money for that. But it took 14 years to write, so the, the money evaporated. <laughs> and when you look at your... Uh, you know, I got on Amazon and uh, found out the most reviewed book of all your books, 337 reviews, by the way, which is a lot, is The Rise of TR, your first book in 1979. The least reviewed is the one I have in my hands, mm. The Living Hand and Other Essays. And um, the Ronald Reagan book was second at 331 reviews. Amazon, bookstores, and the life of somebody who writes today, where are the books being sold? Where are your books being sold? Are they on Amazon or are they in the bookstores? And what's your sense of what the future of that is? Electronic book selling seems to me that it's, it's the way the world is going to go. Superstores now, I was in Barnes & Noble just the other day, they have the forgotten feel about them. Um, most, I think Amazon does 30% of the book business in the United States, if not a, if not a lot more. And um, I'm actually all for it because one can buy so quickly and spontaneously. If one reads about a subject that one's interested in, one can instantly buy the latest book on that subject and have it the, f the following day. Do you tweet? Do you have a Facebook account? No. Do you listen to podcasts? No. Do you watch YouTube? Oh, yes. I go on YouTube a lot because I'm, as I indicated very fond of classical music and I found that YouTube is a paradise for musical performances. An essay in your book, The Logical Life of Mr. Justice Holmes. Mm. An old man ought to be sad. What was that about in 1989? Can you remember things like that? Can I remember things like that? I mean, can you remember that essay? Oh, sure. What yes. was it? Why did I write the essay? No, what, what is it? What was it? Why, why did you do this? It's a short essay. Oh, it was a review of a, a biography of Justice Holmes by Sheldon Novick. And what, what, was, what do you remember about uh, Justice Holmes? You've I've always been interested in Justice Holmes because he's one of the great prose stylists in our history. He was, of course, some um, distinguished Supreme Court justice, one of the most famous we've ever had. But he was a marvelous um, prose stylist. Some of his great opinions and his dissents in particular are American prose at its finest. He had the ability to combine uh, acute intellectualism with vernacular speech. You have an essay in here on Henry Adams, mm -hmm. and a, a review of, uh, I guess, the education of Henry Adams back in uh, 1997, modern library edition. That was an introduction to um, a new edition of the education of Henry Adams. Why yes. Henry Adams? What do you think? What do you like about him? Again, he was uh, he was one of our great letter writers, marvelous prose stylists, prose stylist, and um, I, I got interested in him simply because when I was writing about Theodore Roosevelt, who was his contemporary, 
Adams was one of the sharpest and funniest commentators on the Roosevelt presidency. You write, even his intellectual and social peers found Adams' narcissism unpleasant. And then you go on to quote Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. He wanted power handed to him on a silver platter. Mm. Yes, well, he was, the, as you know, the Zion of presidents himself and um, a waspish little intellectual who, uh, who ran the salon on Lafayette Square to, to which every Sunday for breakfast came all the best people in town, including presidents. They would cross the square to have breakfast with Henry Adams. So he knew them all. Back in 2000, you wrote a piece on the Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. What's your memory of the Library of Congress? When did you first go there? Oh, I used to live there practically. I wrote most of my two first Roosevelt biographies in the Library of Congress. And I was always aware, reading that, writing in that magnificent reading room, that I was in, surrounded by the works of Thomas Jefferson, the original nucleus of the library. And looking up at that dome, I always had the feeling that I was working inside Jefferson's cerebellum, which I think was the central image of that piece. You did a piece in 2004, after Dutch had come out in two, 1999 and 2000. Uh, and there's a line in this piece it says, Gorbachev remarked on Reagan's balance to me in an interview after both men had left office. What's your, what is your take on Mikhail Gorbachev? He's the single most impressive person I've ever met. He, uh, in 1985, 86, 87, through to 18, 1990, which is, I think, when I last met him, he was overwhelmingly charismatic, forceful, and his quickness was spellbinding. He understood everything. A few words of a sentence, he was already there. He was so attractive, and the chemistry between him and Reagan was marvelous to watch. Reagan, slow and benign, stronger man than Gorbachev, oddly enough. Gorbachev was always slightly tentative in his presence, but Gorbachev had this acute intelligence which pulsated from him. A tragic figure, I think, because um, he did transform, he accepted the, the essence of what was happening to the Soviet Union and he presided over its demolition and has despised a result. That's the fault, the, the, the fate of all transitional figures. In that same chapter, you say, I have only two records of him becoming physically violent, meaning Ronald Reagan, once mm. in 1943 when a Hollywood drunk made an anti Semitic remark to his face, and again in 1973 when Michael Deaver challenged his sympathy for the uh, disgraced Spiro Agnew. Why those two things? In the first place, Reagan had a genuinely um, fundamental feeling about totalitarianism, and the Holocaust in particular affected him. In the last year of World War, to Reagan was intelligence officer at the first motion picture unit in California and he had to process day after day after day all the raw color footage that was coming back from the opening of the camps and these horrific images which I've seen myself I've seen that raw footage that Reagan saw in 1945 and it made me sick for days that affected him permanently so when after the war he heard an anti-Semitic uh, remark at a party, he ended up slugging the guy. 
And it's not generally known that Reagan remained so traumatized by his apprehension of the Holocaust that his son uh, Michael told me that both he and Ron and Patty, the three young children, had, when they turned 14, had to watch that same footage which Reagan had sneaked out of the army with him. They had to watch it at the age of puberty, so the onset of adolescence, to see what the nature of anti-Semitism was. What about the Michael Deaver thing and Spiro Agnew? The Michael Deaver thing was... um, um, Michael Deaver made a sarcastic remark about Spiro Agnew, which conflicted with Ronald Reagan's rather forgiving, sentimental attitude toward uh, Agnew. And when you trampled on any of Ronald Reagan's sentimental notions, he could get very upset. He didn't like his illusions destroyed. They have been governors together? Yes, they had, I suppose. Um, Yeah, I guess they were in the 70s, yeah. Here's a clip of you giving a speech talking about the impact of winning the Pulitzer. How many times have you won the Pulitzer? Only once. (laughs) What year? That's quite enough. That would have been 1980 after my first book. That's what? It's very kind of you to applaud the fact that I won the Pulitzer Prize, but uh, you must understand that in New York City, uh, it's difficult to walk around the corner without bumping into another Pulitzer Prize winner. (laughs) However, when I did win it back in 1980, um, I was rather amazed at how perfunctory the award was. There was just a rather grotty-looking certificate that came in the mail. And a check for a thousand bucks. That's it. Uh, However, the doorman of our building in in New York City, who had always treated me with extreme contempt, (laughs) which is what writers have to get used to, suddenly became extraordinarily obsequious, bowing and scraping every time I came out of the door. And I thought, if only for this it's worth getting the Pulitzer Prize. What do you think of prizes? The idea? They're a crapshoot. You, um, if you get one, it's always a combination of luck and timing. In this book of essays, there are, the first three, I believe, were never published. Mm-hmm. What were they about? What's, oh, um, the, what's the bum stitch? <laughs> the bum stitch was um, uh, <coughs> the, just about the first piece of mature writing. I wrote an essay called The Bum Stitch in 1972. It's never been published until I put out these essays. The Bum Stitch was um, a fruit that a f- school friend of mine shared with me when I was about 10 years old in Nairobi, Kenya. And I don't want to go into the story too long because it's rather complex, but um, I see it in retrospect as the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It forms a symbolic uh, image in my past. So I just wrote this little whimsical essay about it. However, after the book was published, my young nephew in England um, decided to research this bum stitch to see if perhaps I was just imagining this this fruit, and he found out he got the actual botanical name. It's a fruit that does still grow in Kenya, and um, sent me the botanical description of it. When uh, you look back at uh, your public appearances and you look back at the whole experience with the Reagan book, who do you remember 
being the Mata statue uh, back when it was very controversial? Well, it's uh, hard to choose because I managed to infuriate a number of people. I remember a friend of mine in New York saying, congratulations, Edmund, you've managed to offend all the conservatives, all the political journalists, and you've even offended the liberals because you've presented Ronald Reagan as really a very substantial person indeed. But um, what's not generally remembered about Dutch is I generated as much uh, praise as I did uh, vituperation. I had some reviews that uh, most writers would die to get. So I look back on the whole episode with great happiness. I, I love the whole But you episode. think about what made people mad. Um, is, is that the best thing you can do when you write, is make people mad enough to react? Did they buy the book? They get mad before they bought the book, or they get mad after they bought the book? What a non-fiction writer has to do, it sounds simplistic, but what a non-fiction writer has to do is tell the truth, is to tell what is non-fictional. And if you tell the truth about any beloved person, any great beloved complex person, you're going to have to tell the sides of his character that the sentimentalists don't want to know about. So I offended a lot of the, 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 the incense swingers, who still um, uh, worship Reagan's memory as some sort of divine god, to prove when I showed that the man was flesh. I thought he was a hugely impressive president. He was a flawed human being, but we are all flawed human beings, and flawed human beings do not like to be told that. Do you miss Theodore Roosevelt? No, no. Oddly enough, um, I think... Um, perhaps rather unusual in this respect, as soon as I've written about somebody, having spent how many years studying them with extreme absorption, they evaporate from my head almost immediately. So I have no curiosity about him anymore. I don't think about him. I'm now completely absorbed in Thomas Edison. You want to predict the year that book will be written? No, I, I tried not. earlier. <laughs> <laughs> The book that uh, we've been talking about is This Living Hand and other essays uh, available now in paperback. Our guest has been Edmund Morris, and we thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. For free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qa.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. 